Welcome to the NM Talks Healthcare Podcast. On this podcast, you'll find thought-provoking insight into critical topics surrounding the healthcare industry. Each episode features Nelson Mullins healthcare attorneys and special guests who offer a variety of experience in healthcare. All right, hello, and thank you for joining us today for this episode of NM Talks Healthcare Podcast. My name is Courtney Tito, and I am joined by Hannah Cross in today's discussion of transitioning out of the COVID-19 PHE. We're going to start with just a quick, quick introduction of our practices, and then we'll get into the details. I am a board-certified attorney in health law by the Florida Bar, and I'm a partner in the Boca office of Nelson Mullins. I counsel clients in federal and commercial payer audits, disputes, and investigations, I counsel clients regarding revocations, payment suspensions, and responding to federal subpoenas and civil investigative demands. And I also do some regulatory and compliance work at both federal and state levels. I represent a variety of provider types, including labs, pathologists, physicians, and physician groups. Hannah, why don't you tell us about your practice? Hey, Courtney. I am very happy to join you today. As Courtney said, my name is Hannah Cross. I am a partner in our DC office of Nelson Mullins. uh, And my practice is complimentary to Courtney. We love to collaborate. I represent hospitals, physician groups, uh, pharmacies, biopharma companies, and I get to do a wide variety of fraud and abuse counseling, um, compliance counseling, as well as clinical trial work. Uh, All of this is very relevant to the public health emergency, and so I think we're going to have a a fun few minutes for people to listen to. Great. So let's get started. I thought today, Hannah, we talked about just let's start with just a brief background of the PHE so we can everybody can get caught up on where we've been and and where we're going. So if everybody will recall, it was March 11, uh, 2020, that the WHO declared a COVID-19 was an actual pandemic. From there, um, shutdowns began, we had no sale orders, we had New York shutting down its public schools. Um, And then really shortly right after that, Moderna started its first human trials of the COVID vaccine. So everything happened incredibly quickly. By March 27th of that same year, the CARES Act or the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act was signed into law. In April, the Trump administration launched Operation Warp Speed to produce a COVID vaccine. Later that year, both the Moderna and the Pfizer COVID vaccines were approved under emergency use authorizations or EUAs. And amidst all of this, we really had HHS and CMS doing everything they can to just keep providers going. Um, This included instituting numerous flexibilities and waivers with regard to the regulations and requirements, um, enforcement discretions, The states also had a lot of um, state level waivers and enforcement um, flexibilities and discretion. And most of these, I would say, covered really broad fraud and abuse concerns, Stark, AKS, but really some specific provider efforts as well. So today, Hannah and I are going to talk about these broader waivers. We're going to focus on Stark, AKS, and telehealth. Then we're going to turn and look at some some provider specific discussions and really the tips for how we can start navigating transitioning out of this public health emergency and what you as a provider or somebody in this healthcare space can do to make sure that you're staying compliant as we go through this. Um, We're going to close with discussion on enforcement that we see is really important. 
the thing to remember is that throughout this particular podcast, we're going to be focusing on the federal health care programs. Some of these things may apply to states, may apply to commercial payers, but for our purposes today, that's where our focus is going to be. So yeah, that's, I, a, go that's a great reminder, Courtney. Um, many states already had their own state public health emergencies that were pursuant to COVID-19 expire. Uh, but this one, like Courtney said, we're looking at the federal public health emergency for COVID-19, and it's set to expire on May 11th. So we are within a month from the recording uh, of this podcast. It's going to come fast and furious. So we'll get started. I'd, I'd like to start us off by looking at the Stark waivers. Um, most of our listeners are familiar with the Stark law. They have Stark compliance. It's an integral component to their compliance program. Uh, back in 20, March 2020, CMS issued blanket waivers of sanctions uh, for Stark for COVID-19 purposes. So listeners can, if they don't have a copy of these blanket waivers, can locate them on the Spotlight website for CMS for Stark. And blanket waivers means that providers and physicians did not need to request permission to use these waivers. They could just rely on them for COVID-19 purposes. As of May 11th, 2023, those will expire. So the time is now for providers to review what waivers, if any, they have been relying on for the past almost three years and make sure that they comply with the Stark law and regulations as they are current today so that on May 12th, they are in compliance. Um, an example of this, because I, I think that might be kind of the best way for someone to understand how this might affect them, is one of these stark waivers had to do with compensation arrangements that didn't satisfy writing and signature requirements. So if a hospital entered into a services arrangement with a physician, didn't get that reduced to writing or signed, and that relationship was for COVID-19 purposes, then it was okay that it was not writing, it wasn't signed, that didn't prevent it from being compliant with the Stark Law from an enforcement perspective. Uh, that's going to change on May 12th. In that scenario that I've described, there are other options for the providers for a 90 consecutive calendar day period. They do have uh, a grace period to get things reduced to writing and signed, and that's in the Stark regulations now. But providers should be looking because there's not always a grace period there. So any time that a provider used a blanket waiver for Stark, they need to be looking at that now to make sure the arrangement complies with the regulation and not just the waiver. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really good point that I want to stress is the PHE ends May 11th. That's what you said. And then I really want to point out what you said there, Hannah, is that as of May 12th, that arrangement has to be different. It has mm -hmm. to comply. And so mm -hmm. keep that in mind to, for the rest of this. I'm going to jump in real quick into the to the AKS, the anti-kickback statute. But I just want to make sure that people remember that this, we've had our grace period. We're, we're winding out of our grace period for this transition. And that as of May 12th, a lot of these waivers go away. Uh, yeah, and compliance is mandatory from that point. So um, just a quick reminder, similar to what Hannah said about Stark, AKS is something that probably most of our providers are pretty familiar with. And if they're not, please feel free to call one of us because we're happy to help you with them. But the thing that I, I think is important to remind providers is that AKS is actually a criminal statute. And that is something I think providers tend to forget. So keep that in mind as we're going through this. 
Um, in April of 2020, the OIG issued a policy statement regarding its enforcement discretion. And in that policy statement, they stated that um, it was not going to impose administrative sanctions under certain sections of the AKS that applied to remuneration um, that was covered under the Stark waivers that Hannah just discussed. So the AKS enforcement discretion is tied very closely to the blanket waivers for Stark, meaning if you don't have Stark waiver compliance, blanket waiver compliance, you don't get that enforcement discretion for AKS. So that's really critical to remember that those two are tied together and it's not separate. You need to have compliance with both. Um, those That enforcement discretion applies for all conduct starting on or after April 3rd of 2020, and it terminates the day that the Stark waivers terminate. terminate. Again, we are in that transition grace period now, so now's the time to get your ducks in a row and make sure that you're ready to turn on a dime and that as of May 12th, you're in compliance. Um, excuse me. Um, again, the statement doesn't cover all of CMS's Stark law enumerated blank waivers, so it's an even smaller subset. So you want to make sure you're keeping on track, keeping track of that. And there, another key point for for those of you in pharma in the pharmaceutical industry or device manufacturers, the ACKS enforcement discretion didn't apply to you at all. So hopefully you haven't been relying on that during this um, PHE. Hannah, why don't you give us an update on telehealth? Yeah, I'm happy to. So providers are going to recall that March 2020, April 2020, when flexibilities and waivers are coming fast and furious out of the government like we've never seen before, telehealth was a huge part of that. And that's because there were so many government orders requiring us to keep distance, uh, the social distancing aspect of our lives for, for those months and years. So for telehealth, prior to the PHE, prior to 2020, Medicare only paid for telehealth services in very limited circumstances. For example, the patient has to be located in a designated rural area. That changed in 2020. So there were so many more flexibilities with telehealth. Um, we're now looking at, okay, beyond on May 12th, what are we looking at here? Congress has acted to extend a lot of the telehealth flexibilities. So many of the flexibilities that we've seen for the past three years have been extended through December 31st, 2024. So we have over another year and a half before we might need more congressional action to see what telehealth looks like. Those specific flexibilities are telehealth services can continue to be provided in any geographic area. The beneficiary does not need to be located in a designated rural area. Uh, people with Medicare can continue to stay in their homes for telehealth visits. They don't need to travel to a healthcare facility to get the virtual service. Um, certain telehealth visits can be delivered audio only, like on a telephone. If you're unable to use both your audio and video, you know, like from a smartphone, someone could use their health phone instead. So those are examples of what providers can continue to rely on in through the end of next year, through the end of 2024. Um, if providers are uncertain if they can continue to provide telehealth services in the way they have been, I would encourage them to go to the CMS PHE fact sheet because they really do outline pretty well what telehealth flexibilities have been extended by congressional action. Um, I'll point out quickly on this that the payer will dictate the telehealth service coverage. So what I've just gone over is fee-for-service Medicare. 
Medicare Advantage plans may offer telehealth benefits, but they should check with those plans. Um, and ACOs may offer telehealth services, Medicaid and CHIP. Um, those telehealth flexibilities were not tied to the end of the PHE, and so many Medicaid programs have been extending them. Uh, private payers, that's going to be based on individual program manuals. So this is just going to be a fair amount of legwork for certain providers. Others might already be on top of this. If a provider is offering telehealth services, I think the takeaway is that it's likely they can continue to do that after May 11th, but we would absolutely counsel them to check with the plans they participate with, federal, state, and commercial, and make sure they understand what they can provide and how they can provide it. Um, that's my quick and dirty on telehealth. I think that it's time for us to talk a little bit about some specifics with providers. How does that sound, Courtney? Sounds good. All right, cool. So I'm gonna start quickly with hospitals because in our practice, we represent a number of acute care hospitals. Um, I can say for myself that, you know, providing advice during the last few years has been the more exciting part of my career, for sure. Um, hospitals relied on a number of waivers. Many uh, of our hospital clients have been staying on top of the waivers that have already been expiring prior to the expiration of the PHE. Um, that waiver document on the current emergencies federal webpage is constantly being updated. I would say probably monthly. And so I would encourage our hospital clients or hospital listeners to be checking that web page. Um, something that I do want to highlight here, the uh, hospital at home program that was not a blanket waiver. It was an individual waiver. So hospital clients had to apply to be able to provide acute inpatient hospital services outside of their facilities. That has been extended by this congressional action through the end of next year. So any of our listeners that are already operating under an individual waiver may continue to do so. And if you're interested in applying, we believe you can still apply. Uh, this is not a blanket waiver. So if this is not something that you're interested in and it doesn't apply to you, you can ignore that part. Um, but congressional action, I, I think at least speaking from the DC perspective, we expect to see even more of that possibly next year on what it looks like beyond 2024. Um, a lot of the same for long-term care facilities, you know, our other Part A provider clients and listeners, uh, any of the blanket waivers are going to expire. So an example of that would that would apply to both of these type provider types are the nursing aid training emergency waivers. A lot of these facilities needed to hire people quickly to keep up with the patient load. And so CMS waived their requirements around nurse aid training. Uh, those actually did start to expire earlier. All of them will be done soon. Um, and so facilities will have a few months to, uh, to get that training done. And I would say if you've been relying on those types of training waivers, uh, you need to prepare to come into compliance prior to COVID-19. Uh, I'm going to flip it over to you for labs and DME clients. Yeah, we've got about, I think about five minutes left, maybe four minutes left. So I'll run through these, just some of the highlights for a couple of these. Um, some of the main points I think um, for labs in particular is CMS allowed uh, labs during the PHE to begin testing as soon as they received their CLIA number. They didn't actually have to wait till their certificate was in hand. That's going to continue post 
um, PHE, so that's something that's great. But testing on asymptomatic individuals will end with the PHE. And as a reimbursement dispute attorney, all I keep thinking is think medical necessity documentation for your claims, right? The normal, the normal medical necessity you would need to justify a diagnostic COVID test is going to come back. That bar was really low, in my opinion, and should have been very low during COVID, even though the payers aren't treating it like that sometimes now. <laughs> but that bar goes right back to the regular bar. Mm -hmm. um, Medicare is going to stop paying for in-home specimen collection fees. There were some limited, very limited instances where Medicare would pay for that during COVID. That's going away. And then all COVID testing that's performed by a lab must be ordered by a physician or a non-physician practitioner for Medicare going forward. Again, this is subject to state regulations and individual payer regulations and all other instances, but just keep that in mind. You're going to need an order for those when it's done in a lab. Um, for DME, a lot of the DME waivers have already been phased back in, meaning a lot of the things that they were allowed to kind of get away with during COVID no longer exist. However, the signature and proof of delivery requirements that were waived during COVID, those are going to be reinstated, meaning you need to have this signature and your POD has to has to comply with everything it had to before. And then during um, the PHE, you could have verbal signatures on orders for everything except for power mobility devices, and that's going to be terminated as of the end of the PHE, which again, May 12th, you've got to be able to remember that on a dime. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the things that Hannah mentioned during telehealth would also apply to physicians. Um, so keep that in mind for remote evaluations, virtual check-ins and e-visits, and remote physiological monitoring. All of those during the PHE could be provided for both new or established patients. Once the PHE ends, it's only for established patients um, once that gets going. And then for the remote physiological um, monitoring, you're going to need at least 16 days of collection before you can bill once the PHE is over. During the PHE, you could do that billing after just two days. So just mm -hmm. a couple updates on physician as well. Um, Hannah, should we jump into looking at some of the key points for enforcement now? Absolutely. But, you know, what you said there about the application of telehealth to these providers reminded me that we should also highlight for people that the supervision requirements are going to change. Mm -hmm. There were relaxed supervision True. for things like incident two services yeah. and what qualified as direct supervision. That's going to change. Actually, I think that the flexibility related to that incident two supervision expires December 31st, 2023. So that is the third expiration date that we've mentioned during our discussion, which mm -hmm. should really highlight to listeners that while May 11th is the end of the PHE mm -hmm. and is the date to remember, you should always double check on the CMS website, reach out yep. to us if you have questions, because many of these flexibilities waivers terminate on kind of a rolling basis, if you will, depending on what the flexibility is. Um, so, all right, let, yeah, let's... Briefly discuss provider relief funds. Uh, a number of our clients and listeners received provider relief funds from the CARES Act. This is separate from the Paytech Protection Act um, and PPP loans. The provider relief funds were never meant to be loans. They were grants of money in order to help providers during this unprecedented time. CMS has started its actions to demand repayment if providers did not comply with the terms and conditions. So while the PRF monies were not meant to be loans, 
They might end up being loans for some people if they didn't comply with the terms and conditions. I've noticed through work with my clients that notices about meeting the reporting requirements for terms and conditions were sent via email only in some circumstances. And that has been a big reason as to why uh, some providers have come to us and why they didn't comply with the terms and conditions. They just were not made aware of the reporting. We have experienced that the final notices for repayment that have gone out have been through the U.S. Postal Service. Providers have received them, and there are select appeal rights within a time frame uh, that providers can utilize to say, we would like to keep the money. Please allow us to report late. Uh, we haven't, for any of our clients, received determinations on those yet. I don't know if anyone else has. I'd be surprised because CMS just started sending them out. Um, but definitely be on the lookout. And if you haven't met a reporting requirement, you haven't logged into our portal and you got that money, check the website to see if you missed the deadline or if your deadline is upcoming, because it will depend on when the money got deposited into your account. Um, you want to talk briefly on all the reimbursement audits? I think there's a lot of activity, Courtney, that you've already dealt with and that you see coming. Yeah, so I think we're past the phase of the really obvious fraud. Like I bought a, a Ferrari with my PRF funds or my PPP funds. Not that that's not still going on, but that was really what I think a lot of the, the public focus was for a while. Um, and now we have all the payers, Medicare, Medicaid, and the commercial payers being very aggressive um, with their post-COVID enforcement. And this is not limited to COVID or COVID-related claims. This is everything. So if you're thinking of industries like labs and DME, which are always highly scrutinized and have always sort of been considered low-hanging fruit for the government, they're coming after you guys with a vengeance. And I see that a lot with my uh, with my personal clients. The records requests that are related to these have increased types of document requests. So instead of, you know, five to 10 documents, you have an entire page of bulleted list of documents they're asking for. Instead of 20 to 40 uh, beneficiaries or claims, they're asking for up to 100. Um, and this is just incredibly expansive. Um, I think also, you know, there's been an increased use of prepayment reviews um, with really broad scopes as well. And I've noticed that the payers are not being responsive to conversations about these, which makes it very difficult for the providers to get off them. And then during COVID, um, CMS wasted no time in utilizing its newer enrollment enforcement authorities to levy 10-year re-enrollment bars. That's a rule that was effective November of 2019 and kind of got lost in the shuffle. It was part of the CMS affiliations rule, which I think is really going to start being enforced as well soon. And that could be the subject of its own full hour webinar. So we won't get into that. Um, and then government in investigations are ongoing. I had a client call me the other day. Um, FBI OIG shows up in their office. Um, right or wrong, they're there. What do you do and how do you handle it? Um, and yeah. this is all going to be aggressive, at least for the next three to five years, coming out of the trillions of dollars that were spent during COVID. Yeah. So, wow. Well, something I've gathered from the fact that we've both started talking faster is that we need more <laughs> of these episodes because there's right. so much for us to cover. And if you only took away one thing, it's that Thursday, May 11th, 2023 should be burned into your brain as a date that you need to not just be aware of, but prepare for. There is a transition. We are in it. And we advise anyone listening to prepare for it. Uh, we really hope you enjoyed our discussion of how to transition after the COVID-19 PHE ends on May 11th. To learn more about Courtney and myself, you can find our bios on nelsonmullins.com. Uh, we look forward to having you join our next episode of NM Talks Healthcare. Hope everyone has a great day.